We're continuing our work through the book of Revelation. We come this morning to Revelation chapter 12. You will notice a shift in the action. The scene has changed, and we're introduced to a few new characters. This is the word of God this morning from Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we ask this morning again that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We know as we read 
some of these chapters of Revelation that we can be consumed by the details, that we can be confused by the events that are described, and we can become easily overwhelmed. So we pray, Lord God, that you would show us what we are to see and to hear, that we would be able to let go of some of the details that might still be mysterious to us, that we might grow in our understanding, that we might glorify you because of it, that we might be sanctified and made more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and we ask this morning that you would be present here with us, your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of these things. Amen. This morning, as I mentioned, we're, we are continuing through the book of Revelation, and we have this morning one of those times I mentioned to you where we have an interlude in the action that's taking place in this book of Revelation. We said this book is defined by the three seals, the three trumpets, and the three bowls of wrath, but in between each of those stories comes brief pauses or interludes. This morning is one of those interludes. Now, there's evidence in the text that we're in the midst of one of those interludes because the first verse this morning says that John saw a great sign. For those in the back that can't see the bottom of the whiteboard, it says a great sign, okay? Verse 1, John, after chapter 11, has seen the events on the earth. Now he looks in chapter 12 and verse 1 says a great sign appears in heaven. So the action has now shifted from the earth to heaven, and this introductory phrase that brings us into chapter 12 is powerful in meaning. It tells us about what we're going to read in chapter 12. This word sign is the Greek word semano. It appears all over the New Testament. You find it over and over again, especially in the Gospels. Every time that Jesus does something miraculous, it's described as a semano, a sign. There are at least three places where the people around Jesus, they say to him, show us a semano. Show us a sign of evidence of your power. Show us a sign of evidence of your authority and of who you are. And so this word literally means evidence. Verse 1 then says to us this morning, John sees great evidence in the heavens. Now the question must rightly be asked as we shift to this story in Revelation chapter 12, what is chapter 12 then great evidence of? What is it evidence of? Well, we have to then refer ourselves to the preceding verses that happen in chapter 11. I will point you to chapter 11, verse 15, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the conclusion of the seven trumpets, we read these words in verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The seven trumpets conclude with this conclusion. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Chapter 12, then, is the great evidence of the reigning of Christ forever and ever. The story, the interlude that we're about to read, then, is the heavenly evidence that Christ 
will reign forever and ever over all creation. All right, that's the introduction to chapter 12. So what we will see in chapter 12 is the unfolding of a cosmic battle that results in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the evidence that he indeed reigns forever and ever. This morning what I want to do is very simple. As we look at chapter 12, I want to look at the three characters that are presented in this vision. Next week we'll see two more characters. We don't have to worry about them this morning. But there are three characters in chapter 12 that are introduced. The first one is very simply a woman. I'm going to try to draw her. Okay, this is her dress and she's a little pregnant. Okay, well she's a lot pregnant. Okay, and she's in anguish and pain. Okay, first character to appear in this passage is a woman. She's described from the very beginning. John sees the great evidence in heaven, and the first part of this vision is a woman appears this morning. Now, I will save you the suspense. The woman in chapter 12 is a picture of the people of God. She represents the people of God. Now, we've seen so many descriptions in Revelation of the people of God. They've been described as the 144,000. They've been described as the great multitude. They are the saints of the living God. They've been described as the bride of Christ. A lot of different pictures in Revelation. This morning, us and believers for all time are described as a woman who is pregnant, waiting to give birth to a child. Now, we make that conclusion for a number of reasons. First of all, it says she's clothed with the sun, right? Uh, The Old Testament scriptures tell us that the sun is a picture of the righteousness of God. Isaiah 61, God says that he clothes his people with that righteousness, okay? She's wearing a crown with 12 stars on it. That's the crown with 12 stars, okay? Wearing a crown with 12 stars. The 12 is this depiction of the perfect people of God. We've seen that already in the book of Revelation. You've got the 12 tribes of Israel. You've got the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. This is a picture that's replete throughout all of Scripture. So she is adorning this as her crown, as her headdress, all right? But what's more than that, we've got this picture throughout all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, all right, we're described as the bride of Christ, waiting on the bridegroom. Jeremiah 4, verse 31, Jeremiah 4, 31, the prophet Jeremiah says that the people of God are like a pregnant woman waiting in eager anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, right? It's as if this vision of Revelation has been lifted out of the words of Jeremiah in chapter 4, and it has become a living picture for us to see. So this woman is a depiction of the people of God, and here she is waiting on the coming of the child. Let me tell you, I think, two observations about her that are important for our conversation this morning. First of all, she is beloved, and second of all, she is in pain. Both of those things are important for understanding the vision of chapter 12. First of all, she's beloved. If you are reading this and thinking, man, she is wearing some funky clothes, okay, you would, be, uh, you would be accurate in saying that, yeah, she's clothed with the sun and the moon, she's got 12 stars on her head, it's, it's a very different picture. It's, it, it is meant, though, to communicate to us that these celestial beings in heaven have been used by God to clothe the one whom he cares about, all right? It's a picture of beauty and of care, and it makes sense because in verse 6, 
As the story moves on, she is taken to the wilderness, and it says the Lord God nourishes her there. She is beloved by the living God, and rightfully so, because she's a picture of his people. Now, the second thing we notice, though, in the vision is that she is in pain, isn't she? There's agony and anguish in the childbearing. You know, it's interesting, uh, this past week we're reading this passage, actually two weeks ago, we're reading this passage in the staff meeting, and one of the staff members, as we're reading it, said, oh boy, this is a, this is a dangerous thing that John does. And I said, what, what's the dangerous thing? I, maybe I missed that. And, uh, and I forget who said it, but they said, John looks at a woman and he assumes by just looking at her that she's pregnant. That's a really bad idea. Don't ever do that. Right? Um, that's not what's happening here, though. John doesn't simply look at her and say, oh, you know, uh, looks like she might be pregnant. He notices that she is in anguish in the childbearing process, okay? That she's in pain, that she's suffering, that this is an uncomfortable waiting, that there's agony involved. And that's a wonderful picture for us of the waiting of the people of God in eager anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? I was thinking about this this morning. We, we are blessed as a congregation. We constantly have children being born, okay? We have a prayer list, and it's like 12 women long right now of expectant mothers, right? What a, what a wonderful blessing that is. And as I've been talking to some of the mothers who are like in their second and third trimester, the conversation is always like, oh, I can't wait to have this child. And I, and I always ask the question, what, what if you go overdue? And nobody wants to talk about going overdue, okay? Just want to have the baby by the due date. The picture in Revelation 12 is of a woman who is thousands of years overdue. Yeah, you can, you can understand the agony that she's going through, okay? The people of God waiting for thousands of years for the promised Savior of the people of God, and here she is in agony and anguish. This child should come but hasn't arrived yet. Okay, this is why, as we talked about the seals in Revelation 6, 7, 8, why with the fifth seal it says that the people of God are pictured under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Okay? Because the people of God have waited throughout all of history for the coming of Christ. Now, we wait in a little bit different way, don't we? Yeah, the Old Testament believers, they're waiting on the coming Messiah. They're looking for his coming. They're looking for the signs that he has arrived. Now he has come, and we wait on his second coming. In, in a different but very similar way, we also wait on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, it's appropriate for us as well to say, how long, O Lord? How long will you delay your coming? How long will you wait to come and redeem your people, to save them from their anguish and their suffering? Yet in one very real way, he's redeemed us. In another way, we're waiting. We're waiting on that final day. That's the woman. She's beloved and in pain, okay? The second image that we see, I'm going to use the red marker, the second image that we see, here's my serpent, and he has seven heads. Yeah, that's a terrible drawing of a serpent, I know, all right? And uh, give him some eyes. On his seven heads, he has seven crowns, okay? You could take a little more time, draw your serpent better if you want to, okay? He's described as being red. He has seven heads and seven crowns, ten horns, all right? 
I don't give him legs for a very intentional reason. I'll tell you why in a second. But he's depicted here in this passage. And listen, if everything in Revelation was this easy, we wouldn't be confused about anything in this book. We get to verse 9, and John is like, I'll tell you who the red dragon is. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this surely is a picture of the devil. Again, if only everything in Revelation was that easy. We could have guessed that, couldn't we? Red serpent, seven heads, lots of horns. It's obvious this is a picture of Satan himself. Now, as I thought about this and thinking about how to draw this, I don't know exactly what this looked like. I, I think I know what the seven heads might have looked like, the seven crowns. I don't know where the ten horns go. I don't know if it's like one and a half per head, or some heads had two and some had one, or whether the horns are somewhere else on the, on the serpent. I don't really know. I do believe one of the pictures that's being communicated to us is that there's a, like a, a lopsided, asymmetrical picture of this serpent. Everything's not perfectly arranged on him. He seems to be a picture of chaos, and indeed, he is the king of chaos. John will go on in a few short verses to say that he is the deceiver of the whole world. Okay, he's the deceiver of the whole world. And you see some of the, the illustrations that are being communicated here. He's got seven heads and seven crowns. He appears to be the real, genuine thing, okay, a king, a ruler. But the ten horns, and then what happens in the following verses, gives us the indication that he's just the counterfeit. And that's what we're going to see next week as we get to chapter 13. This is the counterfeit version of a king, right? He's got the crowns, he's got the heads, everything looks good with him, but then, wait a second, right? The picture that is being portrayed here tells us that he's a deceiver, he's the counterfeit, he has an appearance of royalty and of kingliness, but he's not actually the king. That's at the end of chapter 13, John will say that those who follow the dragon, they got the mark of the beast on their foreheads, it was the number 666, and everybody says, oh, that's a mysterious number. It's not really a mysterious number. Okay, what it is is 777 is the perfect number. Three sevens, it's beautiful. 666 is just a little bit shorter than, okay? It's not quite. It's, it's not the authentic thing. It's, it is insufficient. That's the picture of the dragon that is before us this morning. Yeah, he appears kingly, but he's really not. Let me tell you two things about the dragon I think are important. First of all, he is cursed. Second of all, He's looking to devour. Okay, looking to devour. That's the dragon. First of all, he's cursed. Listen, if you haven't picked up on it already, this story extends all the way back to the book of Genesis, right? You think about the woman, you think about the serpent. The story unfolds in Genesis like this. The serpent deceived the man and the woman, right? They ate from the tree. They disobeyed God and sinned against him. God then curses the serpent he curses uh, Adam and Eve, but he also blesses them in the same breath. And in that curse, what does he say? He says, the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise the heel of her son, of her child, okay? The beautiful picture is there stated and then unfolded in Genesis 3 of the cosmic battle that begins in Genesis chapter 3 and extends to the end of history. Here in Revelation 12, we're simply getting a different perspective of that unfolding story. All right? And so those same characters in Genesis 3 are portrayed here in Revelation chapter 12. We got the woman. Eve was a great picture of her, the beginning of all humanity. We got the serpent, same serpent in Genesis 3 as appears here in Revelation 12. And we got the promised child in 
Genesis 3, he's promised, he's predicted, prophesied. In Revelation 12, he's portrayed as having come and ascended to the throne of God. And so this serpent is cursed. All right, God says in the garden, cursed you will be, and on your belly you will go, and you will eat of the dust of the earth, right? And you will have this battle between you and the seed of the woman, and he's going to crush your head. He is under the curse, and that sets the stage for the unfolding of this battle that culminates in the cross, is still extended to the offspring of the woman. We'll talk about that in a second. But he is indeed cursed. Again, that sets the stage for the unfolding of a cosmic battle. The second thing about him, though, is that he is looking to devour. Let me say a few things about him just as far as being cursed that I forgot. I mentioned to you that I don't think that he has legs to stand. It's interesting here, the word that describes the serpent sometimes is translated as dragon, is the same Greek word that would have been used in the Old Testament in Genesis to describe the serpent in the garden, okay? So it's not necessarily our picture of what a dragon might look like. It is definitely the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 3. And if you look at verse 4, it says that he stood to meet the woman, okay? I don't really think that he's standing on his legs. The word actually means to stand against to stand in opposition to, to rise to meet her, to be opposed to her. And I think that's the picture that's being painted in this passage. Whether or not he has legs in the vision doesn't really matter. He is standing there before the woman, rising to go against her, to thwart her, to challenge her, and to devour the child that she's about to give birth to. Now, I, I'm not sure if you've thought about this, but this is a really creepy picture, okay? So the woman is about to give birth and right there, before the woman where a, uh, a nurse would stand or a doctor or somebody who would help in uh, uh, delivering the baby, there stands the dragon. And he's not helping to deliver the baby. He's waiting to devour the child who is born. Okay? And so this is the picture of the serpent rising to come against the woman and her child. Now, I said he's cursed, but he's also looking to devour. Here's what happens not sure if you picked up on the storyline, but it simply goes like this. There's a plan A and a plan B of the dragon. Plan A is very simple. Stand before the woman, the people of God, wait on the coming of the child. Once he's born, devour him. Thwart the hope, end the story, stop the work of God in the course of redemption. This is plan A. It obviously doesn't come to fruition. What happens in Revelation 12, it says that the child is kind of whisked away to the throne of his father, and that short line, that one verse, describes kind of all that happens in the gospel story, right? Christ Jesus comes to earth, the devil tries to destroy him, all the way from his birth and the killing of the children, through his temptation in the wilderness, through the demons that oppose him, and then finally his crucifixion on the cross. This is the, the dragon waiting to devour the child. It doesn't happen as he plans, though he probably was pretty optimistic at the crucifixion. Jesus Christ is resurrected from the, the dead. He ascends to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and it's as if in Revelation 12, the dragon is standing there kind of like he's been hoodwinked, like what happened? How did I miss my opportunity, okay? The child is gone. The plan of God continues. And so the dragon goes immediately to plan B. Here's what plan B is, verse 13 and then verse 17. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
And then again in verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. You see, the picture that's being painted is very simply this. Plan B for the dragon, the serpent, Satan, the devil. Plan B is if he can't devour the child of the woman, then he will work the best that he can to devour the woman herself and her offspring. And as John helpfully adds, all those who follow the commandments of the Lord God, right? All of her children, the children of God, Old and New Testament, from the beginning of history to the end of history, the plan B for the serpent is to devour them, that if he cannot come against the Son of God, and thwart the plans of God, then he can make war on the children of God. And listen, as, as we've talked through this book of Revelation, we have said this is a helpful book that gives us the tools to make sense of trials and suffering in this world, right? And so we said, God tells us that our trials and suffering are for our sanctification. God tells us that the trials and suffering in this world are part of his judgment on those who rebel against him. It's also true, as we see in this passage, that our trials and suffering are partly because the serpent, the dragon, the devil himself, thwarted by God, unable to stop Jesus Christ, now makes war on the saints within the church, okay? So listen, this is, this is the reality of the world that we live in. As an encouragement to you, I think even this past week, we, we've been talking about Uh, the shootings that happened in Nashville. We've asked you as a church to pray for those families and that church. It's a terrible tragedy that happened in Nashville. One very real way to understand when things like this happen in the world is that the great deceiver, Satan himself, the dragon, is making war on the children of God. Jesus Christ himself said it. He's a thief. He comes only to steal, kill, and destroy That's what he's doing in this world, and his desire is to stop the people of God, that they might turn from the living God and deny him. That's the dream scenario for the dragon. This this explains so much of our existence in this world. It's why we lose loved ones, right? It's why we suffer. It's why we have trials. It's why there's sickness and chronic illness. It's why all of these these trials because of the fall and, the, and sin in this world, Satan is using those things to make war against the people of God. Under the oversight of the living God, according to his foreordained plans, Satan's time is limited. It's why it says in this passage at the, at the very end, uh, uh, he knows in verse 12, uh, on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. It is a depiction of the limited authority given to Satan for a time according to the plans and foreknowledge of the living God where he makes war on the church, kind of trying to stave off his final judgment. But the day is coming and he knows it. And so he makes war on the children of God. The last picture that we see in this passage is a picture of the child. I'm just going to write the child. I won't try to draw the child. Okay? The child is the third character that comes out in Revelation chapter 12. We see a number of things about this child. The child has an iron scepter. 
The child rules over the nations. The child ascends to heaven and is seated on his throne. Again, I will save you the suspense. This child is a picture of Jesus Christ. I imagine by now you have probably figured that out. The child is a picture of Jesus Christ. Let me say two things about this picture of Jesus. First of all, he is the joy of the woman. And second of all, he's a victorious king. Both of these things are important for understanding the passage. He's the joy of the woman. Let's not forget, okay, that the anguish that the woman has is not because of the child. It's because of the pain in childbearing. Let's separate the two things. The woman is not saying, oh, this child. Can't believe I have to wait on this child. The woman is suffering in the anguish of waiting for the child, but the child, in all of our understanding of Revelation chapter 12, if you read it, you begin to feel intrinsically that the woman is waiting eagerly for this child, that he represents for her the turning point, right? The hope, the joy, the salvation, Everything about the coming of this child is for the good of the woman, and that's the picture that's being painted in Revelation chapter 12. So let's not miss that, okay? He is the joy of the woman. Second thing I I hope you'll notice is that he's a victorious king. There's only like two verses about him, but those two verses are chalked full of imagery that tells us that he's a victorious king. Think about this. First of all, As you're reading verses 4 and especially in 5, it says that the woman gives birth to a male child. Now, I don't think that's the best translation of the Greek words, okay? The Greek says that she gives birth to a huias arson. Huias arson, those are the two Greek words. Huias means a son, arson means a man. So if you were translating it literally, you might say that she gives birth to a son, a man, okay? And it seems like an oxymoron at first. The son is a male child. Why do we have to say again that he's a man? The best commentators, they tell us that the, the second word there, arson, is a word that probably should mean manly. Manly, which also has a connotation of being a warrior, a king, a fighter. I think the best translation of verse 5 would read something like this. She gives birth to a warrior, a son. She gives birth to a king, a son, a son who is a fighter. And then the rest of the description of him, it begins to make complete sense, doesn't it? He will rule the nations with an iron scepter. The iron scepter stands out because not only is it a promise to Judah in the Old Testament that Judah will rule with an iron scepter, it is a strange picture because if you were a king and you wanted to be well-respected, you would have a gold scepter for yourself a pretty gold scepter with lots of jewels, and people would say, well, look how wealthy that king is. Look how successful he is. But, you know, the thing about gold, gold's a soft metal, okay? The iron scepter then was a picture of power and authority and dominion. You might as well say that this king carries in his hand an iron sledgehammer, okay? That's probably a better picture for the society we live in, right? He comes with power. He comes with authority. He comes to conquer. And then finally, the other picture we get is that he ascends to heaven. And what does he do? He, he sits on his throne. I love the picture of a king who sits on his throne. We, we tend to overlook that at times, but if there's a king who is 
who is off of his throne, it means that there is work to be done. He has to go out and fight the battle, or he must exercise some sort of dominion over his kingdom. He's busy with activity, but the king who sits on his throne is the picture of a king who says, it's done. It has been accomplished, right? It is finished. That's the picture that's being painted of this child in Revelation chapter 12. He's the victorious king, rules the nations with an iron scepter, seated on his throne. He is the warrior son that comes from the woman. The picture is of a Christ who comes to conquer. And he comes, and he comes peacefully. He comes to bring peace, but he does throw so through exercising his dominion and exercising his authority and conquering, okay? Now listen, this is the picture that we see in Revelation 12. This is the story that's being told through this vision. It's a recounting of a cosmic battle that answers the question, why does Christ reign forever and ever? Why is the kingdom of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ reigning forever and ever? Because he is the king who comes to conquer. Now let me ask you a final question just as we wrap up this passage, okay? Why does God describe, really this is the gospel, why does God describe the gospel in this way? I mean, why do we need this? I mean, doesn't it seem sufficient to pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which you're all very familiar with, to pick up and to read the account of Jesus Christ come in the course of time to save his people? Isn't that enough for all that we need to know of Jesus Christ? Let me tell you what I think God reveals his son, the conquering king, in this way. I think he does so because we too often have a very narrow view of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? Too often we have a narrow view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just write it up here. Our view of Jesus is too narrow. It's too limited. We get this sort of myopic, singular focus about who Christ is, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. Let me just give you a few examples. Today is Palm Sunday. What is Palm Sunday a celebration of? The week before Christ's crucifixion, he enters into Jerusalem, and the people are saying, here comes our king, and he's going to conquer, and he's going to take Tiberius, the emperor, out, and he's going to restore Israel, and we're going to live as a free people, and we're going to have our farms and our houses, and everything's going to be good. Here he comes, and Christ enters into the city, and they celebrate him, and and he comes into Jerusalem, and he says, guys, here I am. I submit myself to you, to death on the cross, and the people are like, what? This, this is not what we were just celebrating. This is not who we laid palms down for and took our clothes off, our cloaks off, and we laid it on the road. This is not our king. He just gave up. Right? That's Palm Sunday. That's a narrow view of Jesus. Think about, we, we do this at Christmas. Jesus the baby, okay? Look how cute he is in the manger. We do this with the way we, we always think about Jesus. Look how good he is. Look at the good things he's doing, okay? He does good things. He was born in a manger. He did enter in Jerusalem on the back of a cult. All these things are true, but when we focus on something uh, very uh, uh, finite about Jesus, we lose sight of the bigger picture of who Christ is. I was reading a, a Barna study this past week, and Barna, you know, they do research on the trends and the culture and Christianity, and they were saying, the author of this study was making the argument 
Christianity is on the incline in young people in America. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I, I didn't think that. So I, I read the study, and, and basically at the end, the very end, it says this. Uh, the majority of young people would agree with the statement that Jesus Christ forgave his enemies, was compassionate, and was kind towards his friends, okay? And I thought, is that all you've got about Jesus, really? That's a, that's a very narrow view of who Christ is. Revelation 12 is God saying to us, let me, let me give you a, a broader picture of the whole story. Let me show you actually what's happening in the manger. Let me show you what's actually happening in Galilee. Let me show you what's actually happening in Jerusalem and at the crucifixion and at the resurrection and at Palm Sunday. Let me give you the bigger picture, and here's how it goes. The people of God have been yearning throughout all of history under the curse of sin, crying out, God, how long will we wait? Waiting in eager expectation for the coming of the Messiah. And while they wait, the serpent, the devil, Satan himself is waging war on them and they can feel his hot, steamy breath and they can feel the digging in of his claws and he is so near to them and they suffer forward, groaning with the creation, waiting on the coming of Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes, born in a manger, he comes to a world where his people are being subjected to the suffering of the serpent. And as he enters into the world, what's waiting for him but the open jaws of the devil waiting to devour him? That's what he comes to. And that Christ comes into the world, very God of very God, very man of very man, and he comes as a conquering king. And he conquers not by his weapons and not by his strength, but he conquers by laying down his life. We saw that in the passage as well, right? They conquer through the blood of the lamb and their testimony. That's what it says in verse 11. He comes to conquer that his people might be set free and redeemed and reconciled that they may no longer suffer but might have hope and joyful expectation. That's the story that's being unfolded in Revelation chapter 12, it is why as we read in this passage in verse 10, John says this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's the encouragement to you this morning. Rejoice, O church. Rejoice, for Satan has been thrown down, and our conquering king has come and conquered by his blood, and by his body. That's what we'll celebrate in just a moment with the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to die, that in dying, he might reconcile us to himself. We ask, Lord God, would you give us jubilant thanksgiving and gratitude that we might rejoice together with the saints in heaven. 
that you have come and conquered. And you have subjected Satan to your authority that he might have nothing in and of himself and that he might know that through the very Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, he has been conquered. Lord, help us to have eyes to see that which has happened and that which is being unfolded in our midst, that by your Spirit we might worship and glorify you. In your name we ask all of these things. Amen.